Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Tolerance is a buzzword. Over the past decade or more, tolerance has been lifted up as an esteemed virtue to some, the highest good of our humanity. So much so that to be labeled as intolerant is one of the greatest insults these days one can receive. To be sure, the mark of modern, enlightened, and civilized society is to live and let live, to accept and affirm everyone's beliefs and behaviors. And yet, strangely, in our so-called age of tolerance, we find ourselves even more divided, more polarized than ever before. Ironically, in the push for increased tolerance, we've ended up becoming more intolerant of each other. Now, maybe this is because our understanding of tolerance isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Perhaps we need to rethink what tolerance actually means and if tolerance ever has its limits. If maybe there are things, some things, we shouldn't, we can't tolerate. Today we return to the book of Revelation chapter 2. We resume our hearing of Jesus' letters to the seven local congregations residing in Asia Minor during the first century AD. We return to our practice of reading someone else's mail, believing that Christ's words of encouragement and correction, of caution and blessing in these letters, they were intended not just for these local churches back in the first century, but were meant for the body of Christ across all time and space. The theme of today's letter to a church in a place called Thyatira is tolerance, specifically when tolerance becomes intolerable. Together, we're going to be reminded the idea that the idea of a tolerant society where believers and unbelievers alike have liberty of conscience, we're going to be reminded that this is specifically a biblical idea. At the same time, we will also learn that while there is a good kind of tolerance, there is yet a right, necessary, and dare I say even virtuous kind of intolerance as well. And along the way, we're going to be surprised. We're going to be surprised to discover that the first place we should be pointing the finger when it comes to being intolerant is not outwards at the culture, but inwards at the church. With that, let's hear from Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating the food of sacrifice to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who are not 
who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold to that which you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father, and I will also give that one the morning star. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the longest of the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, and it's addressed, as you heard, to a community of Christians residing in a place called Thyatira. Thyatira was an industrial city located about 35 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. Situated at the intersection of several different trade routes, Thyatira was a prosperous commercial center. However, despite being the manufacturing and marketing hub of the Roman province in Asia, Thyatira was basically a blue-collar town. It was, its workforce consisted in large numbers of tradesmen and artisans, bakers, cobblers, weavers, dyers, tanners, tailors, metal workers, potters, brickmakers. And each of these professions had a guild associated with them, or in our modern language, a union. These guilds, these unions, would have been all over the place in an industrial city like Thyatira. And it was through these associations, these guilds, these unions, that you networked. It's how you hired workers. It's how you landed jobs. It's how you grew your business, your trade. The significance and influence of these trade guilds is something that will become important as we progress through this letter. But as we talk now about the church in Thyatira, we don't know too much. We don't know much, again, about this church's history, its origins. But there is some speculation that this church may have been planted by a woman named Lydia. A woman named Lydia, who's briefly mentioned, you might remember, in the book of Acts. Lydia was a wealthy tradeswoman. Specifically, she, she, uh, she did her trade in expensive purple-dyed fabrics. And she originally hailed, we're told in the book of Acts, from the city of Thyatira. And Lydia, you might recall in Acts, is the first documented convert to Christianity in Europe. She was led to follow Jesus through the work of the Apostle Paul. And so some theorize that perhaps Lydia was the founder of the church in Thyatira. But biblically, all we know for sure is about this community is how Jesus describes them in these letters. And as you heard, his initial description of the church in Thyatira is actually extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Jesus highly commends them, saying, I know your deeds. Your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that's quite a list of affirmations. It tells us that the church in Thyatira was an outward-facing community, a gathering of followers of Jesus who were less focused on themselves and more attentive towards bearing witness to God's goodness and grace through their engagement with their city. The strength of the church in Thyatira was visible in the practicality, the tangibility, the endurance of their love, their service to others. Out of their faith, these Christians loved each other like Christ and consistently demonstrated the love of Christ to the world through their compassionate service toward their neighbors. But even more than this, if you caught it, even more than this, Jesus also affirms them for making progress for continuing to grow and mature in his love as he declares, you are now doing more than you did at first. Thyatira had a lot going for it. The church in Thyatira had a lot going for it, but this community is not without its problems. 
Jesus turns and addresses a critical area of needed attention as he shares, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet by teaching By her teaching, she misleads my servants. The mention of Jezebel here by Jesus is probably not the name of an actual person. Because as I'm about to discuss, if you know anything about the history of Jezebel, most people weren't naming their kids Jezebel. This is not probably the name of the actual person. This reference to a Jezebel, like the reference, if you were with us, to Balaam last week, to the letter to the church in Pergamum, This is, again, Jesus using, pointing to a well-known figure from the story of ancient Israel to signify something about the church's current situation. So who was Jezebel? Jezebel, as recorded um, in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament, Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who became the evil foreign wife of King Ahab. As the de facto queen of Israel, Jezebel persuaded King Ahab to tolerate her worship of the Canaanite fertility god named Baal, alongside the worship of the Lord God, Yahweh. She fostered the spread of the worship of Baal in Israel by having an altar built to Baal in Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and by underwriting the importation and support of hundreds of prophets devoted to worshiping her false god. Jezebel promoted the idea of combining the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. And she forcibly rejected any notion that to do so was idolatry. She violently executed any prophets of the Lord who spoke out against her. So relating this back to the situation of the church in Thyatira, there was a teacher, perhaps even a movement within that Christian community that in the spirit of Jezebel, was advocating devotion to other gods alongside one's commitment to following Christ. The particular point of tension for Christians in Thyatira had to do with all those numerous trade guilds that I mentioned earlier. Because each of these guilds or unions had a patron deity. In fact, the patron god of many of these trade guilds in Thyatira was Apollo, the god of the sun who as the purported offspring of Zeus, was also interestingly known as the Son of God. Part of participation in membership in the guild meant you had to pay homage to these patron deities like Apollo. There would be meat that would be sacrificed to these gods so that these idols, these gods, would ensure the blessing, the strengthening of these guilds. Being part of the guild meant offering your tribute to these gods, paying your union dues, as it were. Participating in the meetings, the social activities, the required worship services, and not to participate was to be marginalized, to be ostracized. If you weren't a team player, then you wouldn't get the contracts. You wouldn't be able to secure any labor, which meant you wouldn't be able to find any work, which meant you couldn't survive economically. And it's before this crisis of faith and conscience for Christians, someone like Jezebel was teaching there was no conflict of interest. There was no conflict of interest for followers of Jesus who did what they had to do in order to be a part of the trade guild and hold down a job. Now, while we're not sure of the specific argument that was being made by this teacher or this movement in the spirit of Jezebel, 
based on similar struggles throughout the early church, the teaching of Jezebel may have been along the lines of what you do in terms of the flesh, your body, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we're all spirits living in a material world. That's what Madonna's saying, right? Or the police or somebody, I don't know. Being spiritual is what counts. Being spiritual is what counts. What we do physically can be divorced from our connection to Christ spiritually. If you're strong enough in your faith in Jesus, there's no harm. In fact, there's potential power in exploring and broadening one's experience with rival beliefs and practices. And that kind of logic, that kind of teaching, such practices remain a continual deception and snare to this day within the church. But regardless, regardless of whatever their particular teaching was, the one who was advancing it did so, Jesus says, on two fronts. First, they were self-proclaiming themselves as a prophet, as a spokesperson for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord that I'm teaching you. And second, they claimed to possess a deep and secret insight not available to just anyone. So if you want to know the real story, if you want to know the real truth, if you want to know the deep stuff, the secret stuff, listen to me. But as you heard, on all counts, Jesus firmly and strongly rebukes what is being advocated by this Jezebel. Christ allows no quarter for compromising one's faith in him, casting the allegiance, giving the, any allegiance to any other god, the god of these guilds. Jesus casts that as being nothing less than adultery. Jesus, in fact, also reframes the self-proclaimed prophetic teaching of this Jezebel as not previously unknown, not some, some secret positive spiritual insight, but you heard it. It's pretty harsh. He says, these are Satan's so-called deep secrets. And then Jesus goes on, and this is probably the disturbing part of the letter. I saw a lot of faces kind of do like, like this when I was reading it. Because Christ goes on to speak that whoever's advancing this false teaching as well as those who are buying into it, they've been given both the opportunity and the time to repent. They've been given both the time and the opportunity to rethink, to stop and reflect, to turn around from doing what is wrong, and to return, to recenter themselves in him, in Christ, in the gospel. But Jesus says those responsible for leading and practicing idolatry refuse to be corrected and remain unwilling to be changed to which Jesus ominously warns that those who live apart from him, those who live in rejection and denial of the grace of God, Jesus in essence says they will reap what they sow. His warning here, as descriptive as it gets, may seem harsh. Like I said, a couple eyebrows went up as I was reading it. But there's just no getting around the fact that all we can ultimately sow apart from abiding in Christ, all we can ultimately sow apart from abiding in Christ is death. No way other way around it. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing in this life that lasts, that endures. Whatever you think you've got going for yourself, materially, reputation, whatever, whatever you think you've got, Whatever you brag about, boast about, inside if not externally, whatever it is you think, this is mine. If it is apart from Christ, is it, if it is not of the Lord, it 
is not going with you. And you may pass it on, but you aren't passing on a blessing. You're passing on a curse if it's apart from Christ. Because apart from Jesus, there is nothing for us in the end but the grave. That's why we're here. That's the gospel. I mean, it's the short version of it, but that's it. Apart from Jesus, apart from what God does in Christ, there is nothing for us in the end but the grave. It's death. End of story. Game over. Done. Now, at first glance, if you've been really paying attention in this sermon series, the struggles of the church at Thyatira appear to be identical to the church in Pergamum that we looked at last week. Because the Christians in Thyatira, like those in Pergamum, seem to be falling victim to the seduction and lies of idolatry rather than standing firm in the truth of the gospel. And while clearly there is some overlap here, some of this is taking place, if we read Jesus' letter here to the church in Thyatira more carefully, we suddenly notice that the actual problem is different and frankly more troubling. Something that stands out in this letter is the fact that clearly not everyone in the church is following this false teaching. The issue here is not for the community as a whole so much, uh, so much of practicing idolatry as it is. The issue is that they tolerate it. What Jesus rebukes the church at Thyatira for is being tolerant of false teaching and idolatry within the congregation. Not everyone's buying into it, but everyone is tolerating it, being present in the community. You might remember the first letter in this series, the first letter to the church in Ephesus. All the way back in that first letter we looked at, the beginning of chapter 2, the Ephesians, you remember in that letter, Jesus said, struggle to love others as Christ loves us. But remember, he commended them for their testing and rooting out of false teaching within the church. For the church in Thyatira, it's the exact opposite situation. The Christians in Thyatira had the love of Jesus on full display, but their love had become divorced from truth as they were failing to address and correct false teaching and bad behavior within their community. In short, they were inappropriately tolerant. Inappropriately tolerant. Back to that word. Tolerance. Tolerance. Now, while, as I mentioned at the start of this message, while tolerance is often championed these days, tolerance is a challenging trait to get a proper handle on. Allow me to demonstrate what I mean. Were I to ask you to raise your hand if you are a tolerant individual, my assumption would be that your hand would go up. And if I were to raise this question to all of us in the room... I'd be willing to guess that nearly every hand here would go up. When it comes to tolerance, we tend to rate ourselves by comparison to others, attaching labels of other than tolerant to those who are different than us. Don't believe me? Case in point. Most people who think of themselves as tolerant view those who are more tolerant as softer, liberal, compromising. Whereas most people who view themselves 
as tolerant tend to see those who are less tolerant than they are as hardliners, conservative, or nitpicking. But do you see this? This sort of definition of tolerance is highly suspect because being entirely subjective, it's practically meaningless. The word tolerance actually means to show a willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. Based on that definition, to show a willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with, that definition, based on that definition, tolerance can be a good thing. Because just from the start, let's acknowledge this, that our creator, our God, by this definition, is tolerant. After all, we're still here. We're still here. Humanity hasn't completely dropped dead because the Lord is tolerant in the face of our rebellion and rejection of him. Our Father relentlessly, tolerantly continues to pursue us, to heal us, to reconcile us to himself in and through Christ, even while we are yet still sinners. Living in opposition to his character, his will, and his purposes. Therefore, we likewise are called to be tolerant of each other. It is good, right, and true for us not to mistreat others to deny them compassion or mercy because they think differently than we think. Because they believe differently than we believe. Because they act differently than we act. And yet tolerance does have its limits. Tolerance does have its limits. On a personal level, what we tolerate differs depending on our relationships and the situations we find ourselves in. I mean, there are behaviors and practices we tolerate in our relationship with our family and our friends that we would never tolerate from other people. Out in public, we tolerate things that people think and say and do that we would never tolerate in our homes. But again, tolerance is about more than personal preference. When it comes to respect for others, not just the individual, but mutual respect and consideration between people, there is a sense of moral obligation or duty when it comes to tolerance. As a parent, if I see a child playing in the middle of a busy street and then say and do nothing, telling myself, who am I to judge? That's not a good example of being tolerant. That's one of being irresponsible. Pushing this wider, there are some actions, some behaviors that we collectively do not tolerate in society. Can any of us imagine saying to a serial killer, well, you just think and behave differently than I do? It's absurd. Because murder is not something we normally tolerate. We intuitively understand this. It's almost as if the wrongness of this has been hardwired into our humanity from, I don't know, somewhere or someone beyond us. A creator, a moral lawgiver, the Lord. The point is, tolerance has its limitations. There can be such a thing as being too intolerant, or too tolerant, excuse me. 
any definition of tolerance that means that every single individual's beliefs, values, lifestyles, and perception of truth claims that everyone's are equally valid is nonsense. Tolerance on those terms is in fact indifferent to truth. Tolerance of that sort makes morality impossible. And that so-called tolerance that appears to make everything permissible always ends up having some limits, except those limits, not surprisingly, become defined by the convictions and values of those who are in power. Beloved, the God we worship is more than tolerant. We worship a God who is tolerant, but we worship a God who is more than tolerant. The God who comes down to us in Jesus Christ does so because he purposes not simply to patiently tolerate, but to mercifully and graciously confront and heal our brokenness. To reveal to us that we are not all we were meant to be, while simultaneously showing us and empowering us to become all that we still can be. All that we can become through abiding and following him. But this same God, through Jesus Christ, also carefully spells out, specifically in this letter, we ought not to mistake grace with tolerance. We are shown the truth of the gospel. We are extended faith. Faith is a gift from God. We are offered the word and the spirit to be set free from the error and evil of sin. But if we refuse to receive this grace, if we remain unwilling to repent to think again, to be recentered. If we persist in claiming to belong to Jesus while we continue to bow down before other gods, despite what we tell ourselves now, when Jesus returns, it won't be live and let live. It will be live and let die. Now, before... Some or all of us take all that I've said now as some kind of justification for grabbing our torches and pitchforks, for declaring a referendum on how corrupt this world is, how despicable things are out there. And then together we just launch another self-righteous campaign against all the non-Christians. We need to stop and notice something else in this letter Something that, as I said at the beginning, might surprise us. The focus of Jesus' attention in this letter, his bone of contention with the church in Thyatira, is not their toleration of people out there. It is their toleration of people in here. Those in the church who claim to be a part of the body of Christ, but who are speaking and acting otherwise. Jesus' critique of the Thyatiran church is that they are allowing certain teachings, beliefs, and behaviors to creep into the faith that has no business being there. In other words, the point of this letter is not so much about what and how we tolerate what is going on in the world, but rather what and how we tolerate what is happening in the church. 
in the community of people who profess to follow Jesus, to represent Christ. This letter is about a lack of accountability and discipline within the body of Christ. Think of it this way. If our next-door neighbor, who does not profess to believe or follow Jesus, is a selfish, bigoted, and unkind person, we are not called to sit in judgment on that person. Because we have no reason or grounds to expect or to hold our neighbor accountable to the way of Christ. It would be inappropriate. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't know Christ. They don't profess to follow him. It would be inappropriate as well as bizarre if we attempted to correct or discipline our neighbor based upon our beliefs and practices as Christians. You see, tolerance outside of the faith is respecting the reality that while we as Christians we as Christians can and should cherish and maintain our belief and our allegiance to Jesus. We have no right. We have been given no authority by God to belligerently or violently enforce our views and practices on others. Instead, by the grace of God, we have been called with wisdom and modesty to walk by faith, Trusting that the truth of Christ, while it must be shared, the truth of Christ proves and defends itself. The truth of Christ proves and defends itself, particularly as we rightly reflect Jesus, not only in what we say, but in how we live with each other. As Christians, we are called to patiently and lovingly tolerate our neighbor not perceiving any license in their bad attitude and actions to return their behavior in kind. But instead, we are called to seek to treat them compassionately, forgiving them, serving them, despite how they conduct themselves. But let's change it up. On the other hand, let's assume our next-door neighbor claims to be a Christian. If our neighbor is a member of the church, then we cannot and we should not tolerate any attitudes or behaviors by them that run counter to the truth of the gospel. Instead, we are called to care enough to confront a brother or sister in the faith when they are acting, teaching, or leading wrongly. Now, I want to be real clear before I go on. To be clear, as Christians, we don't have to agree with each other on everything. What we're talking about here, what we're getting into, is not about being intolerant towards any deviation from one's own theological view or methodology. No, because being part of the church, especially maturing together as the body of Christ, is learning to accept diversity. The Holy Spirit doesn't bring us all together to all look or think alike. Part of following Jesus is being able to coexist at times with disagreements and ambiguities and carefully discerning when there is room for divergence in opinion and practices. The unity of the church is essential and that means sticking together as the body of Christ is appreciating when and how we can agree to disagree and do so without being disagreeable. 
But on the other hand, we can't refrain from all criticism. We can't refrain from holding each other accountable. We can't refrain from sometimes even enacting discipline. Biblically, the key is we need to speak up, we need to stand up, we need to take action when an individual or persons within the church or if a local branch of the church is promoting a false gospel, is misrepresenting the character of Christ, is wrongfully, hurtfully, dangerously not following the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. When that happens, the Bible encourages us to stand up, to speak up, to work for truth. But the Bible calls us to speak the truth always in love. Jesus, in fact, outlines in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, a specific progression of steps for holding each other accountable in a healthy manner. And other biblical writers, like Paul and Peter and James, amplify this guidance that Jesus gives to us. <clears throat> and what you'll see overall despite how we often do it, is we can be intolerant without being or becoming intolerable. We can be intolerant without being or becoming intolerable. Healthy accountability in the body of Christ is not about policing. It's about supporting and encouraging each other. Healthy confrontation and critique in the body of Christ, should be informed and honest, and yet also compassionate and respectful. Healthy discipline and correction in the body of Christ seeks not to punish or destroy, but to afford repentance, to allow for reconciliation, and healthy boundaries, or even separation, a parting of the ways in the body of Christ should reflect past gratitude. Gratitude for what has been as well as conferring future blessing, not judgment or condemnation. It is somewhat ironic and rather tragic to me that these days the church is known more for being intolerant of the world we're known more for speaking out against cultural degradation and passing judgment on the sins of outsiders. We're known more for that, for being intolerant of all that, rather than tending to our own house. Rather than dealing with the thorns and weeds in our own backyard. Rather than acknowledging, confessing, and repenting of the sins of our own past. We as Christians are willing to intolerantly point our fingers at the world, but when it comes to holding each other, holding ourselves accountable to the gospel we proclaim, to the one we profess to follow named Jesus, we are willing to maintain a conspiracy of silence. We are willing to tolerate narcissistic and toxic leadership so long as the church is big enough. We are willing to tolerate false and manipulative teaching that prevents faith as a means to get rich quick and have it all, so long as the bottom line is black. We are willing to tolerate unchecked sexual and spiritual abuse within our own body, 
out of misplaced loyalty, charismatic deception, or just plain fear of change, losing what we have. We are resistant to lovingly and healthily confronting words, attitudes, behaviors, and actions in the church that are not of the Lord, that are giving Jesus a bad name, that are grievously wounding others. You all know people who've been hurt. All of you, I will bet my life on it. You all know people who have been hurt within the body of Christ, who have left. Did you ever say anything? Did you ever speak up? Or did you just figure, well, I guess that happens. We are reluctant to lovingly and healthily confronting words, attitudes, behaviors, and actions in the church that are not of the Lord, that are not only giving Jesus a bad name, that are not only grievously wounding others, but that are driving people away from Christ rather than towards him. Think about that. We exist to draw people towards Jesus. And yet, whether we agree or disagree, like it or not, more and more the church is driving people away from Jesus. That's intolerable. We are more tolerant of knowing but claiming not to know. We are more tolerant of sensing something's wrong but not ever bothering to ask. We are more tolerant of seeing what is not right but choosing not to say that it is wrong. We are more tolerant of keeping our faith private. By the way, that's a false gospel. Well, your faith's your faith, and my faith is my faith, and you do what you do. You're not going to find that anywhere in here. You're not going to find that anywhere in here. But we are more tolerant of keeping our faith private, of not making ourselves accountable to anyone. Who are you accountable to? Who? Who? Oh, you're accountable to God, yes. And, and, and who is the person that makes sure that the God you're speaking to to be accountable is actually the God that we worship and not the God you create in your own image? Because I do a really good job confessing to the God that looks a lot like me. We have some great conversations. And you know what? He always agrees with me. I love my God. He always tells me, you know what, Chris? You're right. You know what, Chris? It's okay. You know what, Chris? They deserve it. You know what, Chris? Well, you had your reasons. You know what, Chris? I forgive you anyway. Who are you accountable to? When's the last time you've opened yourself up to anybody? Ever? You know, Protestants, and I've talked about this before, you know I'm, my background's Catholic. Protestants, I love it when Protestants will get all hot and heavy. Confession and the Catholic Church, man, that thing is so wrong. I don't need any intercessor. I don't need to confess my sins to a priest. I can confess my sins to Jesus. You know what my next question is? When's the last time you did? And I don't mean the generic, Lord, I'm sorry for all the things I've done and not done and the things I should have done. I mean, get specific. When's the last time? We're more tolerant of keeping our faith private and not making ourselves accountable to anyone. We're more tolerant of sinning in secret rather than opening up and daring to ask for help. The greatest heartbreak in my job as a pastor and it's not just for me, it's for the body, is when we see people within the body who are struggling, 
silently, privately, secretly, and they blow up. Their marriage blows up. Their family blows up. They blow up. And there's nothing we can do in the aftermath except to try to come alongside them. But all that while, no one knew, no one saw, no one heard, no one dared to ask. And we all just kind of get used to it. We all just kind of, well, hope it's not me. We're more tolerant of gossiping about the thorn in my brother or sister's side. Even as we ignore the giant log coming out of our own eye. Before we paint, point the finger, we need to look at the log in our own eye. Jesus said that. And yet, when we refuse to look, as Jesus describes poignantly in this letter, as we refuse to look, Jesus describes his eyes are like a blazing fire. And that image is meant to remind us that Christ sees us as we truly are. Christ sees us as we truly are, not as we pretend to be. The soul-piercing gaze of Jesus penetrates all that we are willing to tolerate within ourselves, all that we are willing to tolerate within his body. And Jesus sees us as we are and lets us know that he sees us as we are, not just to leave us exposed, not just so we're sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm naked here. But Jesus sees us as we truly are and tells us so in order to enable us to stop hiding, to stop running, to stop trying to convince ourselves to keep living a lie, to stop tolerating being in prison and instead to find freedom. Christ alone, who searches and knows all hearts and minds, looks at us, comes to us, speaks to us, works within us to cleanse and to heal us. Through this letter to the church in Thyatira, Jesus isn't just calling them, just calling us out. He's not just calling us out. Jesus is inviting us yet again to be informed in order to be transformed by him. Jesus ends this letter speaking of giving authority to those who keep following him. And his promise here is a direct reference to Psalm number 2, which describes how the messianic king received from the Lord the authority to bring to bring all nations under his rule. Christ, the Son of God. Not Apollo, but Christ, the Son of God, promises us the authority he first received from the Father. The authority to be changed. And then the authority to change the world as we reflect and share the transformation Jesus is accomplishing in our own lives. At the very tail end of this letter, you heard it, Christ also promises to give us the morning star. The morning star is the star that appears at the darkest time of night, at that moment when it's so dark, it looks like the dawn will never come. The appearance of the morning star immediately in that moment transforms the seemingly all-encompassing darkness into the darkest that it's ever going to get as the promise of the dawn now begins to loom on the horizon. Jesus, with this image, is offering us the ultimate sign of hope his presence as the light in the darkness, our darkness. His presence as the light the darkness cannot ever overcome. Jesus is assuring us that he is with us every step of the way, and we don't have to tolerate the darkness in our lives anymore. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be both wonderfully tolerant and boldly intolerant all at once. Our tolerance for the darkness of this world 
and for those who are lost and trapped within it. Our tolerance is to remain high, for we have the light of the morning star. We have Christ going before us. At the same time, authorized by the word and the spirit, being made part of the body of Christ, we must be intolerant of anything that wrongly, falsely, willfully, persistently misrepresents the gospel that saves our lives. The gospel that seeks to reshape this world. And that kind of intolerance has nothing to do with being narrow-minded or bigoted. That kind of intolerance has everything to do with caring enough to confront, loving others enough not to cheapen the precious value of grace. It has to do with caring enough to ensure that the God to whom we are pointing others Ensuring the God to whom we are pointing others is not a God fashioned in our own likeness, but rather is the God in whose image we have been created. The God who in Christ is is reshaping our character and will into his likeness. Beloved, to tolerate anything less is to deny ourselves, to deny others the fullness of all that we have received the fullness of all that we continue to receive. Thanks to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So I invite you to be a little more intolerant. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.